Why is it that some people doubt that God exists? They think that science has explained away God. Science has removed the need for God. We can explain all the mysteries of life now through science. This is their idea. Science has been removed and explained away God. They, for some others, they've experienced heartache. And oftentimes heartache is associated with a time in their life when they prayed. They may have been praying for a loved one to be preserved. They may have been praying for some thing to happen and it didn't happen. And in the midst of life, their heart was broken. And so for them, they concluded there must not be a God. For others, it's because they've met a Christian and they don't believe there's a God. This is probably one of the saddest ones. They've met someone who claims to be religious, someone who claims to be born again. Yet they've discovered that that person, very quickly discovered that this person's a hypocrite. And this is one of the reasons why some of the sexual abuse news that's come out from members of the clergy on children is so horrific. For others, they consider belief in God to just be superstitious. It's just nonsense. How could you believe there's a God? It's like Tooth Fairy, Easter Bunny, Santa Claus, um, uh, like whatever. And God just put it all into the category there. I'm just mindful there's children here. I don't want to. I don't want to distract people with. He said what? So. Surely in this enlightened age, <clears throat> we know there's no God, they would argue. So their reasoning goes like that, that, that belief in God is just a superstitious idea. Yet for others, there's this sense that I'd rather not know. It's kind of like, ever had a toothache? And the first thought that comes to your mind is, I think I should go to the... De- oh, I'm not going to the dentist. <laughs> the dentist might tell me I might need a filling. Or worse... You ever had one of those aches where you think, I should go and get that checked out? And then thought, no, nah, they might tell me it's something bad. <laughs> I better not get it checked. And I think belief in God for some people is like that as well. They get a lump. They worry what the lump might be. But it's best not to get it checked out because if they discover what it is, that just makes it worse. And for these people, the idea of God interferes with their lifestyle. If there is a God, there are lifestyle consequences. The idea that for some, um, belief in God is irrelevant. I mean, there may be a God, there may not be a God, big deal, so what? I've got bigger fish to fry, I've got problems, man. I you can have your God. You, you, you might need a religious crutch. Not me. I'm too busy just trying to live life. God's just not relevant for me. So it's not that they don't believe there's a God or they do believe there's a God. It's just for them, it's just not relevant. That's how they justify their doubt of God. Well, there are, when you actually press people who claim that they doubt that God exists, oftentimes they raise these objections in support of their claim. They, they will often say this, you can't prove either way. You can't prove there is a God. God can't be proven. And they have this idea that 
faith, as we saw last time, faith is something that has no fact associated to it. And that kind of faith is not the faith the Bible describes or teaches. For others, their objection to God, their doubt of God, is based on the idea, well, you you claim that your God's the only God. That's arrogant. I'm not going to accept that. How do I know you're right? You can't be, here's the key word, certain that God exists. So they justify their doubt of God on the basis of certainty. I'll believe in God if he comes down from heaven and stands right in front of me, introduces himself to me, then I'll know there's God until I get that kind of certainty, I'm not going to believe. Ever heard that? I've kind of heard that. Then there are people who are what are called physicalists or materialists. Materialists, not in the sense of you know, greedy and covetous, but their idea of the world is that the only things that are real are material things, things you can touch and see, things that you can put under a microscope, observable things. So they claim the only things that are real are things that are physical. Therefore, an immaterial God cannot be real, they would claim. Okay, so these are the objections. I'm not going to deal with each of those at the moment, but I'm just going to point out there are some really valid counters to each of these. Really valid. They're gentle, they're reasonable, and I believe they're logical as well. And for some Christians, the idea, or some people, the idea that Christianity or biblical religion is logical is, is kind of like an oxymoron. How can you have logical faith in God because after all logic deals with the facts and faith deals with a lack of evidence you just trust it despite the fact there's no evidence and I'm, I'm going to suggest to you that someone somewhere started that myth that the Bible is based on blind faith it's not in fact in the Gospel of John Jesus is introduced as the ultimate logic. The Greek word is logos, where we get the word logic from. It's translated best into English as the reason or the word, which is what logic is about. It's about being reasonable. Jesus Christ is described as the ultimate logical reality. In the beginning was the logos. The logos was with God The Logos was God, it says in John 1. That's partly in the Greek. So, I could spend a lot more time explaining to you that the kind of faith the Bible talks about is not a faith of just merely believing something, but it's the kind of faith of putting your trust in someone. There's a difference. So here's my question to you. If I'm to present to you some evidence now, some proofs for God, my, my question to you is this. Are you going to respond as a cynic or as a doubter? If you're here today or listening to me today and you're responding as a doubter, let's have a conversation. If you're here today as a cynic, well, there's not much more I can do. I'm pretty much done at this point. But if you're here today and you're an honest doubter, you've got some honest doubts, then here's my question. And it's a question 
that Plato, who writes about his mentor Socrates, this is what he said. He put it in the mouth of Socrates. Truth is wherever the evidence leads. Therefore, this is, what, this is how he put it. Follow the evidence wherever it leads. So are you prepared to look at the evidence for God? Are you prepared to look at what evidence there is, what proof there is for God? To do that, I need to introduce these two terms to you, proof and certainty. Because when we talk about proof for anything, some people, like for example, the person who says, prove God to me, having come down from heaven and stand in front of me right now. I want to see the invisible God. Does anyone see a logical problem with that, demand, that kind of proof claim, that, that, that demand for proof? In other words, proof, if you want to see an invisible God, then there's probably something about the, in, the word invisible you don't quite understand. So when we talk about proof for anything, the issue is, does the kind of proof match the claim being made? So for example, if someone said that, uh, what's the guy who can run 100 metres really, really, really quickly? Usain Bolt. If someone said, well, let's go and measure it, shall we? Let's use, what shall we use? We'll use... Uh, to measure whether he can run 100 metres in under 10 seconds, we'll use a calendar. How's that going to prove that claim? But a calendar does prove some claims. For example, Johnny Kim randomly mentioned before the 2nd of December 2009. What day was that? Was that, was that the date? What day was that? Do you remember? 2nd of September 2009. Yeah, and, and what day? Do you remember what day that was? Day of the week? Tuesday, maybe? How would we prove whether Johnny's right or wrong? Google it. Not helping, Gina. The word is calendar. <laughs> because if you start going down Google it, Google it's going to be the answer to every question I'm about to ask. <laughs> we'd use a calendar now when Kim mentioned the 2nd of September 2009 before that happened to be the day that Johnny's mum died so when Kim said do you remember what happened that day Johnny clearly remembers what happened that day possibly Tuesday we'll have to check later on a calendar it was a Wednesday it was a Wednesday well we've, we've, we've been able to verify that the calendar now tells us when it was so we can use a calendar to prove something all right if if we said julius caesar was the first king of rome would you use a stopwatch to prove that claim it's ridiculous you'd use the appropriate proof to support the claim when we claim that there is a god you need to understand that the 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 nature of proof has got to be appropriate to the claim so i want to explore it in a moment the other so Proof varies on the type of claim being made. Certainty, on the other hand, certainty, if we were to really push this point, I would ask you, what are you absolutely, and I'm using that word very deliberately, absolutely certain about? And the answer is probably not much. In fact, we would all go 
crazy if we required absolute certainty for anything. What we do as just normal human beings, we operate on a principle that it's beyond all reasonable doubt. In fact, when a man or a woman or someone is, who's charged with murder is, is convicted of that crime in a court of law, they don't require absolute certainty. They just require proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's how we function in life. So if I can present to you appropriate proofs, proofs that kind of align with the claim, and adequate certainty beyond reasonable doubt, I hope that you will follow the evidence where it leads. When we look at these issues, we also employ a couple of principles. This one is the principle of the inference to the best explanation. You're at a dinner party. You're at, you're at someone's house for dinner. And as you're there, you hear at the door. You don't budge. Your guests look up at you wondering, you didn't hear the door knock? Eventually, you can take it no more. You go, I, there's, there's someone knocking at your door. You go, ah, oh, it's probably the wind. Next thing you hear, And you think, and they say, that's not the wind doing that. No, it's probably the wind. Can I just point out at this point, the wind is not the best explanation for what is causing that knock. Next thing you hear, it's not the wind. It may be a debt collector, but it's not the wind. The inference to the best explanation is what best explains that knock at the door? Someone, of course, could say, that knock just caused itself. It's not real. It just spontaneously came into existence and created its own sound. Now, why would we think that's ridiculous? Because we know intuitively that something cannot come from nothing. So we would laugh that. We, we would just laugh at that. We would think that's crazy. So when we're looking at certainty proof, we're looking for the inference to the best explanation. What best explains all the evidence that we have? Secondly, we're looking at cumulative and consistent evidence. There's a, a, a cold case detective who's written a book called Cold Case Christianity, which I would recommend. It's um, J. Warner Wallace has written it. You can get it at Kurong. He's a cold case detective, that, which means he takes up murder cases that are 20, 30 years old. And on the basis of the historical evidence, he then reinvestigates the case and he has something like a 70-80% success rate in actually finding the murderer and getting them convicted some 20 or so years later. And when he goes to court, he often has no confession, no witnesses, no murder weapon, and yet on the basis of all of the other evidence he has, not just one of them, but all of it, he says he's able to convict the actual murderer because all of the little bits of evidence accumulate to paint a picture. And sometimes when you're looking for proof for anything, that's how it's going to work. What are the proofs for the existence of God? Proofs for the existence of God. Well, here's the first one. The universe had a beginning. I've just said to you before, when you hear a knock at the door, you don't think that knock created itself. That sounds like someone's knocking at the door. And here's, here's the big deal. Scientists tell us 
that the universe had a beginning some 13.77 billion years ago. It's called the Big Bang. Now, you might think, well, I've heard people say that the Big Bang does away with God. On the contrary. In fact, it was... Uh, uh, there was an atheist physicist who heard, uh, his name was uh, Fred Hoyle, and he, a uh, British guy, so Frederick Hoyle, he heard Edwin Hubble, you may have heard of the Hubble Space Telescope, Edwin Hubble discovered that there's this thing out, as he was looking at, the, he was an astronomer, he noticed that all, everything just seems to be moving out, and it just kind of seems to be expanding, and he discovered that the universe is expanding. But it's all expanding from what appears to be a central point. And as Edwin Hubble sort of calculated it with physics back, he said it looks like everything, everything, all matter, space, time and energy began at a single point. It began. Now this was radical. This is back in the 1930s, 20s and 30s, into the 1940s. Now this is when some of the brightest minds on the planet, like Einstein, said when he was asked, how did the universe come into existence, Einstein's response was, the universe is like lungs. It's just always been. It just expands, contracts, expands, contracts. This has always been. And then Edwin Hubble comes along and says, there's no contraction. There's nothing. And you might think, how could he know? Because you can actually tell what happened in the deep, deep, distant past because light takes a lot of time to travel to an observer on Earth. You can actually see what's going on a long time away and there's no contraction anywhere in the universe. It's all expanding. And Einstein, it's called Einstein's Great Embarrassment when Edwin Hubble proved Einstein wrong on the origin of the universe. Now, Frederick Hoyle didn't like this. He said, hang on a minute, you're telling me that once there was nothing, then in a moment all time, all matter, all energy and all space came into existence? What, like bang, like a big bang, and then it happened? And he coined the expression Big Bang to mock Edwin Hubble, who was a Christian. The term Big Bang was meant to ridicule what the Bible teaches. And today, most people think, because it's so well established as scientific fact, in fact, 25 major studies have verified there was a Big Bang. Now, where you've got a big bang, by necessity, you need a big banger. <laughs> bangs don't bang themselves. Big bangs, as far as every big bang I've ever heard of, requires a big banger. Something can never come from nothing. So you've got to think about this. If space, energy, time and all matter began... And science is clear on this. Before that, there was no space, there was no energy, there was no matter, there was no time. So whatever caused it is greater than time, greater than all the energy of the universe, is greater than material, physical stuff, and is greater than space. Because... No cause, sorry, no effect is greater than its cause. All right. The second proof, the existence of God. Here's my cumulative case. The universe exhibits design. This is incredible. 
This really is incredible. That, for example, we can look at the, the entire universe. The entire universe, and I don't want to sound like a flat earther, but I'm a flat universer. The universe, according to the best of astronomy, is actually flat. It's a big, big flat, almost like a plate. Just flat. And inside there, you've got galaxies. <laughs> we live in one. Anyone know the name of ours? The Milky Way. We live in the Milky Way galaxy. And in the Milky Way galaxy, you've got solar systems. We live in a solar system, uh, which means we have one sun, one solar system. Around our sun, there's a number of planets. My very elderly mother, that's how you remember the planets. Mercury, uh, was it Mercury? Venus, very early, Earth, Venus, Earth, Mars, right? And, and on it goes. And we are on planet Earth placed in, in there's a band, uh, here's the sun, and, and if you could draw a band around the sun, if you're, if you're, if you're in that band, you're, you're the perfect distance away for the warmth of the sun not to cook your planet. And when your planet rotates, that it's not too cool that you freeze to death. There's only a very, very small slither where that's possible. And the gravitational pull's not too great to suck you into the sun and do some horrible damage. And, and astronomers call that band around the sun the Goldilocks zone. And Earth is right in the middle of it. Uncanny. But in order to stabilise Earth's rotation, you need a moon. But it can't just be any moon. It's got to be a moon exactly the right size, exactly the right distance away, exactly the right mass, exactly the right composition, exactly the right shape, and coincidentally, our moon is. Then on our planet, you need exactly the right gas mix for us to breathe, and so on and so on. I've given you about five things that are just right. In fact, I could list, if we had the time, 1,200 of them that need to be just right at the same time in order for human life to be possible. This is called the anthropic principle. Anthropos means man. The anthropic principle. It, it appears that everything is designed for man to live on this planet not any other planet in the universe. Really incredible. This is something widely acknowledged by scientists. They don't understand how it's possible, but they acknowledge that it exists. When you've got design, it can only come from a designer. Here's the third proof. The third proof is that there is universal morality. That is, we all understand right from wrong. From the earliest age, a child who feels they've been mistreated will yell, that's not fair. Well, how do they know that? You know nothing. How did you know that? I mean, the child's first word out of the womb is, or if it's, you know, dada, of course, dada, sometimes mama, well, in, in our four examples it was mum, but anyway, it should have been dad. Anyway, and then, and then it's, the first word is no, then the first phrase is, that's not fair. From the earliest stage, we, we have an, an inbuilt sense of right and wrong, morality. How do we have that? Well, it's intuitive that we, that we understand right from wrong. It's an intuitive that we understand morality. How is that possible? I'm going to suggest to you we're created in the image, 
in the moral image of God. And God is the ultimate source of right from wrong. And we all bear his image in some way. That's how. Proof number four, the resurrection of Christ. This is the big one. If I was to offer no other one, I would just go straight to this one. I think the first three are overwhelming. But here, the, the resurrection of Christ. Jesus Christ made a claim that no other human being has ever made. He claimed to be God. He claimed to exist before he was born. He claimed to have interacted with people on earth before he was born in Bethlehem. He then said this, Kill me. And in three days I will rise again from the dead and this will be my ultimate verification of everything I've said. He pinned everything he said, did and taught on his resurrection. The resurrection is the ultimate test of the claim, the claims made by Christ. But you know what? If Jesus Christ rose again from the dead, it changes everything. Everything. 1 Corinthians 15 in the Bible, Paul says this, If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, we are wasting our time. Because it just doesn't matter. There's no proof for Christianity. If Jesus Christ, if you can find the body of Jesus Christ, the bones of Jesus Christ, Christianity collapses immediately. It's that simple. Many people have set out as atheists to disprove the resurrection of Jesus and I have not found one yet that has not been converted to Christ as a result of their quest. The proof of the resurrection of Jesus is easily historically verifiable. Easily historically verifiable. Up to 500 eyewitnesses at one time. We have the Apostle Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 15 to the Corinthians where he says there were 500 people who saw Jesus dead. They saw him buried. They saw him some 40 days later alive, physically alive. Not some hallucination, not some ghost-like creature, not in a dream, not in a vision. They saw him. They touched him. At one point, you remember one of the, the first people to see him actually hugged him. That's when Jesus said, hey, and I think he said it to prove to us that he was actually physically alive. Don't cling to me right now. I think it was his way of saying, you're clinging to someone, aren't you? You're not clinging to a vapour, a ghost, <clears throat> a mirage. Number five, and this is a big one too, and for many of you here, this has been your big deal. God can be known. God can be known. Millions upon millions of people claim to have experienced God in some way. The claims that God makes in the Bible can all be put to the test. They can all be put to the test. That's why we would say proof number five is personally verifiable. You can test it yourself. And I'm pretty much done, but I just want to give you a couple of scriptures and leave this with you and if you're here today and you're, you're already a believer, you might want to just write those five down. So when someone says to you, you can't prove to me there's a God. Oh, yes, I can. The universe had a beginning. The universe exhibits design. There's universal morality. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And I know God. Like when Time magazine came out with their front cover, God is dead. Billy Graham was interviewed the next day. 
and he, he, they asked him, what's your response to the front cover of Time magazine? He said, God can't be dead, I was just talking to him. <laughs> Romans chapter 1, I've got two verses here, then I've got one more verse, then I'm done. For what can be known about God is plain to them. This is, this is what the Bible says. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, they, all mankind, are without excuse. And here's my closing verse, and it's a precious verse. It's a big one. For me, it's, it's one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. Because it meets me where I'm at, and I hope it meets you where you're at. And this is my hope for you, that you'll get this. Oh, taste and see, Psalm 34, verse 8, that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man or woman who takes refuge in him. Oh, taste and see, that the Lord is good. You see, the Bible actually says you may not believe there's a God, you may doubt there's a God, but why don't you have a taste? Why don't you have a taste? And how do you do that? It might simply be you right where you're at now saying, Oh God, or whoever you are, I don't know if you exist, but I really want to know you if you do. Please reveal yourself to me. Show me who you are. Help me to come to know you. I want to know you. And if that's your prayer, I guarantee you God will answer it. Because Jesus taught something similar. Seek and you'll find. Knock, the door will be opened. That's what Jesus said. So here's where I want to finish. God invites doubters to come to him. We finished up looking at Jesus with Doubting Thomas. <laughs> and how Doubting Thomas went to be Faithful Thomas, who ended up being one of the greatest missionaries, one of the greatest preachers, one of the greatest apostles that lived. Because Jesus met him, didn't rebuke him for his doubt, but gave him the evidence to counter his doubt because the antidote to doubt is not faith. The antidote to doubt is the truth. Let me pray for you. Then we're going to close with a song and we're done. And we're back tonight at 5.30 as well. Father, I pray for each of us that are here today that, Lord, we might taste and see that you are good and that father in tasting and seeing that you are good our lives will be transformed to be all who you want us to be father have your way in my life help me to present people with just a glimpse i'm sure if they get a glimpse of you jesus if they get a glimpse of you they won't have a choice but to fall in love with you Father, I pray that every person here today would just have a glimpse, a glimmer of who you are. Even a glimmer is enough for them to turn their lives over, totally trust you and love you. Now, if you're here today and perhaps you've never given your life to Christ, you've never said, God, I need your forgiveness. I need you to come into my life. I need you to be my saviour then I just encourage you right now where you're at, you can transact your confession to God in prayer. Oh God, please forgive me. 
you can appeal to him to come into your life. Oh God, come and save my soul and help me to live for you. You pray a prayer like that, I guarantee you he will answer it and meet you where you're at. Now, Father, keep and guard each person here. Bring us back safely. For those of us that will be here tonight, bring us back tonight. And Lord, through this week, have your hand on your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.